dear friends, respected Thai. We chose um, this month for our sutra study, The Diamond That Cuts Through Illusion, also known as the Diamond Sutra. And it's another one of these monumental uh, texts, both um, the full length of it is, is fairly long compared to many of the ones that we read. Um, the version in the chanting book is an excerpt. Um, Thich Han has written a, com a, a, a long commentary of the entire, that, that go goes over line by line or section by section of the entire thing, and it is a multi-hundred page book. So certainly we are not going to attempt, I am not going to attempt <laughs> to recapitulate the entire text or comment on the entire text. But because it's one of the ones that we don't often recite, that means that there are parts of it that we don't um, engage frequently. And I think that, that our Sutra study um, theme has given us the opportunity to, to do that and find parts of all of these um, canonical texts, both the, the more commonly studied ones and these more obscure ones, but still central ones to engage. So I found a, a part of this um, text that spoke to me uh, at the retreat. I, was, I, I gave it as my, my task on Saturday to study and, and contemplate and find the a way to um, engage this sutra. So the part that we're going to uh, look at is the, is the portion that touches on the concept of generosity. And in the mindfulness trainings, we have this idea of generosity that, that enumerates the um, generosity of uh, material, uh, possessions, giving of our material goods or wealth, um, our time and our skill or um, ability and discernment. And um, there, there's lots to be said about that and I'll, I'll try to connect to that. But I think the thing that's both challenging and very inspiring about the frame for generosity in the Diamond Sutra is that it takes it takes the, the notion of what generosity is and how to practice generosity to a, a much um, higher or deeper level, however you want to conceive of the profundity of it. Um, more foundational to how we can imagine just conducting ourselves. What, what does it mean to live generously? So I have a few... Um, and, and that was why I, I led us through the meditation that I did during the second sitting period because oftentimes other, other, other people who give these um, talks are really wonderful about giving examples from their own lives that connect their practice and, and very concrete um, situations. And for whatever reason, I am sometimes reluctant to do that and it's not because I'm afraid of self-disclosure or... Um, even oversharing, it's more that um, I'm always nervous that my experience isn't necessarily applicable to everyone else. And so I wanted to invite each one of you to 
imagine your own relationship to generosity, your own experiences of generosity or lack of generosity, rather than me assume that my experience is somehow um, definitive or, or um, perfectly illustrative. And that's not that I won't mention anything about my own experience, but I wanted to begin with everyone to have that sense of where you are yourself with the notion of generosity. So here's a little snippet from the, the Diamond Sutra after the preamble of where they are and all of those usual things. The Buddha said to Subhuti, this is how the Bodhisattva Mahasattvas master their thinking. However many species of living beings there are, whether born from eggs, from the womb, from moisture, or spontaneously, whether they have form or do not have form, whether they have perceptions or do not have perceptions, whether it cannot be said of them that they have perceptions or that they do not have perceptions, we must lead all these beings to nirvana so that they can be liberated. Yet when this innumerable, immeasurable, infinite number of beings has become liberated, we do not in truth think that a single being has been liberated. Why is this so? If Subhuti, a bodhisattva, holds on to the idea that a self, a person, a living being, or a lifespan exists, that person is not a true bodhisattva. So this concept of generosity really begins with the concept of emptiness or not, no self or interbeing, as we try to say more commonly in our tradition, because interbeing has a more, I think, concrete sense of what it can mean. And one of the things that occurred to me, again, while, while I was at the retreat, was an image of what, what is interbeing, or how to kind of um, give a, get a, contrast it to our usual sense of self and identity. So I, I imagined the, the difference between um, that old 1970s art where you would pound a bunch of little nails in a board and then draw a string between the nails and you would make this pattern. And that's kind of like how we often think of ourselves. I'm a nail, I have my place, that's my spot. That's me. I'm kind of connected to these other nails by, other, by strings, but, but I'm really right here and right me, and, and that's, that's, that's the deal. And if, I, if the string gets cut, I lose that connection, or I get connected to another nail, okay, fine, there's another connection there. But I'm always in my place, and I'm always me, this nail. But if we reimagine what, under, in, in the concept of, of interbeing, we're not a nail on a board with a string tied around us. We are a string in a tapestry. And we're in, always in contact with, all the, with many other threads in the tapestry. And when we get woven and pulled in, the other threads have to make room for us and we nestle down beside them and connect with them and cross over and under them. And if something gets added to the tapestry, we have to accommodate that and the pattern that we create is all of those points of contact and and soft motion and it can be folded and moved and it's a very fluid relational thing 
and if we move, other things move. And that, that sense of, of being in constant relation and constantly changing connection, to me it was just a, a, a simple way of, of, of imagining what, what inner being is like. So what then, how does that then start connecting to generosity? Well, in the sutra, the next passage goes on to say, after he talks about not being a true bodhisattva if you are holding on to the idea of a, a self or a person. Moreover, Sabuti, when a bodhisattva practices generosity, they do not rely on any object, any form, sound, smell, taste, tactile object, or dharma to practice generosity. That sabuti is the spirit in which a bodhisattva practices generosity. And so now all of a sudden, it's like, well, it's easy to imagine. I mean, the things that are named in the, in the mindfulness training kind of fall into that category of, well, I, I mean, our family has a tradition of giving a substantial a substantial portion of our income to various charitable causes every year as we, as we can. And we try to set aside money all the time so that we have that money available. And we um, have a party at the end of the, in December usually to write out checks and mail them. And, our, and we all decide together what we're going to give, what groups we're going to give to. And that feels really good and it feels generous and in some level it is. It's not that it's nothing. But it is, it is relying on a thing, giving a thing. Here's some money. And um, we can all imagine uh, many times when we've been given something that felt like it came with strings attached or it was not the right kind of a thing. Um, funny example, when I was married 22 years ago, we were, before we got married, we visited um, Jody, my wife's grandmother, who was fairly elderly. And she gave us this box. It was, this, it was supposed to be a, a present for both of us from her. Department store box all wrapped up. Jody opens it, starts to hold it up, and it is this, the most atrocious, old-fashioned, nylon, sheer, aqua blue negligee that you can picture ever, that was just like <laughs> so out of place, so impossibly wrong, so completely and utterly wrong in all the ways. And we were expected to, you know, oh, thank you, you know, all of that kind of thing, and to be grateful for it. And clearly this was a gift that was given because it may have just been in the back of her grandma's closet for 40 years for all we know. I mean, it really could have been that kind of a thing. But it had, there wasn't really any genuine attention given to what Jody might like or even what I might like or want or anything of the sort. It was all about her grandmother and her thoughts about what she was, was, was about. So the attention to the other was not there, the connectedness, the relationality. 
of the gift was not there. And again, I'm sure everyone can imagine either receiving or even giving a gift like that, where the temptation, the e- it's so easy to give something that we like rather than what we know the other person might like or want or need. So that's where the, the objects come in. And, and that's, that's a very tricky one because we also can imagine lots of um, situations where it's just really difficult, even if we have a spirit of wanting to be more profoundly generous, how do we go about figuring that out? How do we, how do we know? How can we be confident that what we're offering or want to offer is the right thing, is, is truly generous? And I know that's one of the things that I personally have struggled with a lot is um, being, not having the confidence to give, feel like what I could give was anything more than what I, want, what I wanted to give. And um, a lot of my own uh, practice and effort has come from around trying to open myself up the other and to feel like I have that ability to see and discern that I see you. And then of course how many gifts are given with strings attached that there is an expectation of some reciprocation or some gratitude or some other further aspect of the relationship that that the gift signifies. And so that brings us to the next, the, the last passage of the sutra that I want to highlight. That subhuti is the spirit in which a bodhisattva practices generosity, not relying on signs. Why? If a bodhisattva practices generosity without relying on signs, the happiness that results cannot be conceived of or measured. Subhuti, do you think that the space in the eastern quarter can be measured? No, world honored one. Subhuti, can space in the western, southern, or northern quarters above or below be measured? No, world honored one. Subhuti, if a bodhisattva does not rely on any concept while practicing generosity, the happiness that results from that virtuous act is as great as space. It cannot be measured. So the bodhisattvas should let their minds dwell in the teachings I have just given. So that's another level of um, detachment from expectations. This notion of signs and signlessness is something that there's a lot of formal philosophy around that, a lot of formal Buddhist um, study around that, and I'm personally still trying to get my head around the um, sort of strict interpretations of that, but I think it's fair enough to say that, you know, when we talk about a sign, that's a symbol that points towards something else, and so that gift with strings attached, there's an expectation that something will happen when I give the gift. Or somebody, like I'm 
I'm rich and I give a bunch of money and they name the building after me. So that's that's there's a that's a there's a quid pro quo there. Is that generous then? If I get this renown, if I'm seeking fame, a sign of my value in the world by giving something, does that mean is that generous then? If I get if I receive that um, that return. And so I think what it really ends up boiling down to, and this is back to the sort of term that we've been trying to think about of engaged Buddhism. What is engaged generosity? And for me, what I've, what I've settled on is that it is no more and no less than radical openness. Openness to ourselves and what we have to offer and what we can offer. Openness to giving things without feeling like it is costing us something. That giving up, we're not giving up something even though we are giving it. Openness to the other, to understand and know them as they are rather than as we want them to be or think they ought to be or that we think this gift will make them be. And all of that is incredibly challenging, an incredible act of courage, of hope and possibility. But it has become my, my prog progress, project. And one of the ways that it intersects with um, some other sort of secular non-Buddhist thinking is there's a, there's a um, school of thought in uh, professional work and um, it's called design thinking. And the basic idea is that a designer is someone who solves a problem. They are not simply an artist who just creates something cool that, here, take it or leave it. They are understanding the world as it is. What are the needs that, are, that they're trying to meet? What are the, the constraints and, and, and limitations that, that just are, that they can't fight their way out of or, or refuse to acknowledge as parts of the puzzle? And then, how does, how does a designer apply their own skill and discernment and creativity to offer something new and something beautiful that solves this problem in a meaningful and, and powerful and beautiful way? And that's, that is engaged generosity. And so um, that, and, and, and another way to think of it is, um, again, as, as improvisation rather than scriptedness. That my own journey with um, anxiety is that I, for so long, thought that my problem was I didn't have the script. I didn't know what I was supposed to say when somebody else said or did something else. Because I, I, I assumed that everybody had the script. And I was just the only one without it. And that was, that was my failure, that was my um, my, my lack. But part of um, this practice and part of these ideas for me, as well as some other things I've worked with, has been the realization that nobody has the script. There is no script. It is always 
an engagement here and now with where we are and what we are at any given moment, and then what do we do? What comes from that that we both genuinely bring in a moment of connection? So that, I would maintain, is engaged generosity and that is enough. <laughs> <laughs>